All right, we'll be reading today, and it's not going to be up there, so you might need to pull out your phones or your Bible itself. We're going to be reading from 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11, and I'm going to be reading from the NASB. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same purpose, thought, or intent. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having purposed, uh, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and an abominable uh, idolatry. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of precipitation, and they malign you. But they shall give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has, for this purpose, been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of things, of all things, is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment, and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep in fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak, as it were, the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that our prayer would be like your prayer, that it would be of your will, not ours, Lord, as we um, may face suffering uh, in this world. Lord, I pray that we will embrace that. Lord, that our focus would be uh, upon your will and what you have for us to do, no matter what the cost is. Lord, I pray that we will set aside those things that are, are, are tempting in the world and really pursue you, because you're worthy of that. Lord, I pray for Tom as he comes and speaks. Lord, I pray that he would speak as if the utterances of, of you, Lord. And Lord, I pray you bless our times. Help us to really... Um, be attentive to your Holy Spirit and what you might be prompting our hearts to do and things for us to change. Lord, I pray you convict us of sins, if there's sin in, uh, that we need to be convicted of, Lord, and that we would quickly come to you and repent and seek your grace. Thank you so much that your grace is here for us. I pray this in your name. Amen. Good morning. The more time I spent uh, looking at this passage, uh, the, the clearer it became to me that verses 1 through 11 is a unit. It needs to be taken together, but due to yet another postponement of my scheduled brain transplant, we're going to do it in two parts. There's so much here that I could not get myself to approach it at a level that would cover all 11 verses at once. The title of this, uh, of this message, this two-part message, is It's About Time, and you'll see why as we proceed. Peter has a very powerful exhortation to us in this passage. And it's as life-changing today 
as it was the day it was written. In his predictably great message on the same passage, Sinclair Ferguson tells of an episode in the life of John Wesley. And as Wesley was going about his travels, preaching in various communities, he met a man on one of those journeys who asked him what he would do if he knew that Jesus was going to return tomorrow. So Wesley uh, reached in the, the bag that was strapped over the back of his horse and he pulled out his diary. And he opened up his diary and he, he read the tasks that he had scheduled for the next day. And he said, that's what I would do. Now, I wonder if uh, many of us could give that same answer. Have you ever thought about the fact that there is one resource that God has given to you that has a fixed limit? You'll never have any more of it than you do now. Now, there's no end to the love that God has showered upon you in order that you might shower it upon others. You can keep giving that love away and you'll never run out. God may even give you more money than you expected at times in your life if He has use for it. And by the way, that's why He gives us money. But there's one resource God has given to you that will never increase. Instead, it will only decrease day after day. And that's the time that He has allotted to you to advance His kingdom between now and the day that you stand in His presence. God knew the days that He had ordained for you before there was as yet one of them. Psalm 139.16 And nothing that you or anyone else can do will change the number of those days. Peter tells us in this passage what we are to do with that very limited and very precious resource of time. Now the first two verses in this passage can leave you scratching your head if you don't see them in the context of what Peter has just been saying, especially if you water down the phrase ceased from sin in an effort to make sense of, of this verse, of this passage. The key to understanding what's going on in this passage, I believe, comes in two parts. First, the phrase has suffered in the flesh refers to completed suffering that has ended in death. Secondly, the phrase has ceased from sin also refers to a com completed event. It refers to the end of the person's association with sin in all respects. It doesn't mean it is not talking about someone sinning less than they used to. Now let me explain. Peter begins chapter 4, verse 1 by saying, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, the word therefore points back to what he just finished saying about Christ's own suffering in chapter 3. And specifically in chapter 3, verse 18, he said, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Put to death in the flesh. Then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, past tense, with present ramifications, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, the same thought or intention. 
because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. As John MacArthur points out, the word suffered in chapter 4 verse 1 is synonymous with the word died in chapter 3 verse 18. Now that's not an unusual meaning or connotation for the word suffer in the New Testament. It may strike us as unusual, but it's not. It often means suffered to the point of death. It includes the end point of the suffering. In Luke 24, 46, Jesus said to his disciples, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. In Acts 1, 3, when Luke is talking about Christ's appearances to his apostles after his resurrection, he said, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. And if you want to write some other verses down that present suffering in the same way, Luke twenty-two fifteen, 15, Acts 17, 3. That's Luke twenty-two fifteen, 15, Acts 17, 3, and Hebrews 9, 26. They all do that, that same thing with suffering. So the first thing to understand here is that when Peter says Christ has suffered in the flesh, he's talking about the whole package, that Christ suffered and died. The second thing I believe we must understand here is what Peter means by ceased from sin at the end of verse 1. I'm going to read the first two verses and I'm going to omit that part, that because clause in verse 1, so you'll see what I believe to be the essential logic or flow of Peter's statement that that clause then explains or amplifies. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh to the point of death, arm yourselves also with the same purpose so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. He's saying, arm yourselves with readiness to suffer unto death, just as Jesus did, so that you will live the rest of your time here in your mortal body, not for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. The because clause that I omitted explains exactly why that readiness to die as Christ did makes perfect sense. It is because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Peter is saying, and you could, you could put a capital H or a small h in front of the word he there. Peter is saying that this is true for us because it's true for Christ. Christ is our template in all of these things. The outcome of suffering to the point of death is cessation from sin, and that changes everything. Now you say, but but Jesus didn't sin. Okay, stick with me for a minute. Jesus suffered while he was here. Every single day of his life here was a battle against sin. Ours, not his. But it was his death that brought that battle to a wonderfully victorious end. For Christ, the cessation from sin, the end of sin that his death brought about did not mean that he stopped sinning because he never sinned. But his death put an end to his very painful association with sin. It put an end to his experience of living on this cursed earth in the midst of people like us. Peter says we are strangers and aliens in this world. But Jesus was the ultimate stranger and alien. In Matthew seventeen seventeen, Jesus 
addressing primarily his disciples, said, Oh, unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Every single day that the perfect man, who is also perfect God, had to walk this cursed earth surrounded by sinful people like us was torturous to him. So what sustained Jesus to endure all of the unjust suffering that he faced every day that he was here and to endure the incomprehensible suffering and shame of the cross all without sinning? Hebrews 12.2 says it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It was the joy set before him. The joy he knew would result from his suffering and death that could not and would not come apart from his suffering and death. That is what sustained Christ to suffer for righteousness' sake to the point of death on the cross. That is our template for resisting sin and living for the will of God in the midst of suffering for Christ's sake. Suffering all the way to the point of death. This works the way for us that it worked for Him. Peter says, Know this, and keep it firmly in mind so that you may suffer well and usefully, so that you will be armed to live no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Know this, suffering is part of dying. But for us who belong to Jesus Christ, death is not the end of life. Death is the end of sin. And it is the end of dying. John Owen's classic book on the atonement of Jesus Christ is titled, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. It's one of my favorite titles in the history of Christian books. The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. That says it. Because of Christ's suffering and death, death for us is not the end of life. Death is the end of sin. And it's the end of death. (laughs) It's the end of dying. We carry about in our bodies the dying of Christ every day, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. Death puts that to an end. There are two powerful, world-changing ramifications of what Peter's saying here with regard to how we live now. First, we do not fear suffering because we do not fear death. Suffering is part and parcel with death. So is mold and mildew. Christ has turned death into a glorious victory, every bit of it. That includes the suffering part. There, secondly, there is... So first, we do not fear suffering because we do not fear death. Suffering is part of death. Secondly, there is no point in sinning. Sin is a denial of reality. It's insanity. Christ has turned the curse of sin into the cure for sin. So there's no point in sinning. Our destiny... The whole reason that we suffer here, the whole reason that we are still here 
is because Christ put an end to sin when He died. And when we die, we'll be done with it. So what are we doing spending our time here messing with sin? It doesn't fit the whole reality that God has presented. Look at the sins, the list of sins in verse 3. Sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and and abominable idolatries. The abominable idolatries come about because of all the rest, the justification of all the rest, right? We've got to change God out if we want to do all this other stuff. But those sins that are listed, those are sins of escape. They seek to somehow transcend the pain and suffering and toil and tedium of this mortal life by doing more of the very thing that brought about the pain and suffering and tedium and toil of this mortal life. They seek to circumvent the curse of sin which is suffering and death with more sin. Does that make sense? It's like shooting yourself in the foot to cure your toenail fungus. But we know that In Christ, suffering and death, which is the curse of sin, brings about the end of sin. Peter is calling us to be armed daily with this marvelous awareness that only, only by suffering and dying will you be fully and forever liberated from sin. And only by suffering and dying will you be liberated from suffering and dying, which is the curse of sin. Be armed with that assessment of things so that you may live the rest of your time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men but for the will of God. As has been Peter's focus since the beginning of this epistle, it is our living hope in what God guarantees is coming that equips us to live very well in the here and now. And now that he has once again placed that living hope on the front burner of our minds and hearts, Peter calls us to a revolutionary approach toward every single day that remains to us in these fleshly bodies. And it's about time. He draws a very clear line between the time already passed and the rest of the time that we will spend in the flesh until these bodies die. Every one of you who has been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light has, in effect, two biographies. Your first biography is the story of a slave to sin, a condemned enemy of God, destined to eternal condemnation and helpless to do anything about it. Your second biography is the story of a willing and joyful bondservant of God forever liberated from the enslaving power of sin destined for eternal blessing. The first is a story that moved from one manifestation of death to another, and the second is a story that moves from life to glorious life. Baptism, which Peter just talked about at the end of chapter 3, is the God-ordained earthly picture of of that miraculous transition from the old identity to the new. Peter now calls us to see that line of demarcation as a line that we can never cross in the other direction. 
And he puts it in terms that are all about time. Verse 2, he tells us that the rest of the time that we will spend in the flesh is set apart for the will of God, not for the lusts of men. And in verse 3, he says the time already passed is sufficient for every indulgence in the lusts of men. This is God's wake-up call to us as His children, not in some quaint, cute, metaphorical sense that we can approve with our lips and ignore with our feet. God is calling us to wake up now to snap out of our spiritual lethargy and laziness and to embrace our calling to suffer as Christ suffered to the point of death, knowing every moment that it is that suffering and death that will bring about the end of sin for us and for others who don't yet know Him. God is using our suffering, our dying, right here, right now, to save other people. That's what Peter's been talking about ever since chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He's taking his big picture exhortation from those two verses, chapter 2, 11 and 12, and he's attaching to it a, a, an urgency, a time urgency that we cannot ignore. That earlier exhortation said, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts. Same thing, right? Which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. God intends to use your right handling of suffering as a powerful evangelistic instrument to draw people to faith in Christ. Now Peter's adding a time urgency to that calling. And the forcefulness of that appeal becomes clear if you look at all four statements in chapter 4 that have to do with time. We'll get to a couple, to a couple of those in more detail next time. But look at these four together. Verse 2, we are to live the rest of the time no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Verse 3, for the time already past is enough for us to be done with indulging the lusts of men. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober for the purpose of prayer. And then verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? There is very much at stake in our response or lack of response to this time-urgent appeal. Our immediate, continual, and unreserved response to this calling will fortify us and will make us useful to God to advance and to populate His kingdom. Our neglect of it will cripple us and make us useless to God. And the time that remains for us to be used by God is very short. The end of all things is at hand. And you may say, yeah, but Peter wrote that a couple thousand years ago. Just flip over to Second Peter 3, right? 
Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. God says the end of all things is at hand. We don't get to reinterpret that. We're supposed to live every single day as if it is our last. Romans 13, Paul gives us a vivid picture to carry around in our mind's eye to help us with this to remind us of the great urgency of this calling. After declaring that love for our neighbor is the fulfillment of the law, Paul says, besides this, you know the time. And I take that that word, uh, it's participle, but I take it to be imperative and force. Listen, besides this, know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Paul likens all that remains of our time on this earth to the last hour of night just before the dawning of a new day. He says that's all the opportunity that we have left to shine the light of Christ into this dark place so that God may use us to rescue others out of darkness into His marvelous light as He has rescued us. That's why we're still here. Peter commands us, just as Paul does, to put away from us all the deeds of darkness, to set apart every minute of the time that remains to us here for the will of God. He just told us how we arm ourselves to do that. We bear always in mind that for us as for Christ, suffering unto death will bring complete victory over sin. We know where this is headed. That revolutionary knowledge equips us to live revolutionary lives. To live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So let's take hold of that very powerful, very unsecret weapon And let's get on with living for the will of God. Now, what should you expect from unbelievers if you actually do this? Well, Peter tells us, he says, they will be surprised that you don't want what they want and you don't do what they do. It will boggle their minds that you don't want the good times that they see as the very goal of being alive as the definition of being alive. How could anyone not want to escape from the mundane drudgery of life into the realm of maximum sensory stimulation and excitement and sexual gratification? They say, come on, you know you want it. And if we were who we used to be, they'd be absolutely right. But beloved, we're not who we used to be. And we're not whose we used to be. 
We are no fans of the painful, mundane, monotonous, tedious affairs of life on this cursed earth. But our living hope is a future hope. God's promise to us of a life of abundance and fulfillment and transcendent blessing that will leave behind every vestige of the curse of toilsome labor and decay and conflict which our sin brought upon His creation by His hand. The promise of that deliverance is a promise that God says cannot and will not be fulfilled until these bodies die. We place no hope at all in anything that this world has to offer us here and now. None at all. We have no expectation of putting suffering and injustice behind us here and now. Our hope, the only hope that's real, is by definition a hope that is not seen. In Romans 8, 24 and 25, Paul makes that crystal clear. That means we don't get to see it and touch it and lay hold of it now. And because it's not seen, Paul says, with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. That eager expectation is what compels us and drives us here and now. It defines everything for us. That living hope defines everything for us. It's what empowers us to live exceedingly well while we remain in these cursed bodies on this cursed earth. And you know what? That is completely incomprehensible to lost men and women. That's because their hope is fixed on a mirage, on the wonderfully convincing, beautiful-looking lie that they can have their best life. But they don't stop at being surprised, do they? Peter says they malign you. The word translated malign is very interesting. It's the word blaspheme. It means to speak evil of that which God calls sacred. In nearly every case in which this word is used in the New Testament, the subject, those doing the blaspheming, are godless people. And the object that is blasphemed is almost always Christ. Sometimes it's His faithful angels. But here in this passage, it's us. If we do what Peter is commanding us here, godless men will blaspheme us. We whom God declares to be His holy nation will be called unholy by the world. We'll be called evil by the world. They malign, slander, mock, ridicule, despise, persecute, and in some cases, kill us whom God declares to be His chosen race, His royal priesthood, His holy nation, a people for God's own possession. They blaspheme the redeemed of God whom God calls holy. When unbelievers see you and look at your life in light of your future living hope, when they see you forsaking any hope in this fleshly existence, they will feel terribly threatened. And they will respond to that threat the way a cornered rattlesnake responds. 
But you don't have to spend even a moment worrying about whether God will deal with the unjust suffering that you'll experience at the hands of such people. Because our God judges justly. And no one, absolutely no one, will escape His just judgment. Your concern is that you may be found useful to God to deliver some from having to bear that just judgment on themselves. Because you don't, if you've trusted in Christ. And by the way, if there's anyone here who hasn't, if you've not put your faith in the all-sufficient payment of Jesus Christ at the cross that paid once and for all the eternal penalty of your sin, then you will spend eternity paying for your own sin unless you trust in Him. The Bible doesn't mince words about that. But for us who belong to Christ, the just judgment that we deserved, 1 Peter 3, verses 24 and 25, was placed on Christ by His wounds. We have been healed. There's a wonderful silver, silver lining for those who do not yet know Christ, and it's right here in verse 6. Peter goes, yet, go, goes back yet again to God, that overarching purpose for our suffering in this life. There are many godless men and women to whom the gospel has been preached. Those unbelieving men and women have gotten to watch the way Christians live and how we handle suffering including the suffering that has come to Christians by their hand. Many of those unbelievers have already died physically. But by God's faithful work through His chosen people, the only judgment, the only judgment that some of those formerly ungodly men and women will ever face for their sin will be the same judgment that we face. Temporal, temporary judgment as men under the curse while they are while they were here in the flesh. I believe Peter's talking in verse 6 about those whom God has called out of darkness into His marvelous light. Men who now live in the Spirit according to God. I looked at that phrase every way that I could and I think it's talking about people who've been redeemed. That's why we're still here. So that God may use us to escort others out of the darkness to join us in His marvelous that's a really cool assignment, guys. <laughs> it's a great assignment. What we do with the rest of our time here either complies with that assignment or denies that assignment. If you persist in clinging to the things that you found attractive when you were still in the darkness, you'll be useless to God and to everyone around you. The time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. It doesn't matter if you're 80 years old or 8 years old. Whatever time you've already spent indulging the lusts of men, Peter says, that's enough. My dear mother-in-law related to me this week a true story about a man that she and dad knew well, when they were all much younger, they were all in their 20s. That young man was a believer. And he told Larry and Jenny that he knew full well that God requires His children to be all His, to live for Him. 
But somehow he thought he could get away with putting off that calling at least until a little bit later in his life. He wanted a little more time to enjoy the things of this world. And he figured that God was forbearing enough to give him that that latitude. Less than a year after he said those things to Larry and Jenny, he was dead from cirrhosis of the liver. And you know what causes that. And if he was indeed a child of God, his life served only as an example to others of how not to live. The very worst thing that I can imagine as a child of God is standing before God on that last day and looking back on a life that was of little or no use to Him. And it's not the guilt or the shame that makes that thought so repugnant to me, although either of those should be sufficient cause to to move me toward godliness. It's love for the One who plucked me out of utter darkness and gave me life when all I deserved was eternal darkness. The one who bore my sins in his body on the cross in order to bring me to God. I want my life to count for him. And the only way it will is if I live the rest of the time here no longer for the lusts of men but for the will of God. There is no middle ground, beloved. James says in James 4, 4, you adulteresses, and he's talking to believers. He calls them my beloved brethren. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And whoever wishes to make himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. God jealously desires the spirit that he has made to dwell within you. And he's not messing around. How are you spending your time? Peter gives us one very telling measure of that right in this passage. As we just saw, he presents the opposition of the world against us, not as a possibility, but as a fact. It will always be surprising and threatening to godless people when they come across a child of God who doesn't want the self-indulgent good time for which they exist. If your life is not surprising to this world, if it does not generate slander and ridicule from those who love the lusts of men, you can be pretty sure that you are presently in the process of wasting the time that God has given to you here. Because there's no middle ground. Now I want to be careful here, but not so careful that the point doesn't get across. When is the last time that you asked a trusted brother or sister in Christ to ask you every now and then how you're spending your time? How would you react if someone did that? My dear brother Bruce Beatty used to regularly ask when he'd talk with me on a day on or a day off, what do you have going on today, Tom? I don't believe it was his intent to make me feel guilty. But guess what? That's what happens some days. I've come to value that question more than ever. What do you have going on today, Tom? 
There are a couple of dear brothers in this body that I meet with regularly who still ask me that question on occasion. And every time they do, God uses it to remind me why I'm still here. Sometimes I find that question convicting. (laughs) Sometimes it makes me squirm. Sometimes it makes me very uncomfortable. And on occasion, my answer is intentionally evasive, and that's not good. But it's always a really, really good question. I pray that my answer may become like John Wesley's answer. I pray that whatever I resolve to do and actually do on any given day would be good to do on my last day in this fleshly body. And I pray the same thing for you. Beloved, I hope we're paying attention to Peter here. I hope, I pray with all my heart that this means something to us, that we don't walk away from this as if it's something we can just entertain for a few minutes and then go on about our business. If you're not living strategically, thoughtfully, intentionally, you are not living for the will of God. There is nothing passive about this. It does not work if we go through our days in a passive mode. And there's no doubt that God will on occasion, uh, maybe on a regular basis, throw a curveball into our plan for any given day. But we must resolve that every day of our lives will be given over to the things that exalt His Son and advance His kingdom. We are to live every day with a constant eagerness, readiness for this to be our last day in these mortal bodies. For this to be the day that we see Christ face to face and that we are we are made like He is because we see Him as He truly is. I mentioned this once before, but it's very fitting for the passage at hand, so I'm going to share it once again. A couple of years ago, a group of young adults with whom I had had a long-standing weekly Bible study got into a conversation about the legalization of marijuana in Colorado and Oregon that is now, of course, expanding to many other states. It was a, parts of it were fairly heated. After listening to their discussion for a little while, I asked them why it mattered so much to them. That prompted even more heated discussion. It's no doubt the same essential arguments on both sides that many of you have already heard. So I listened for a while, and then I expanded the question a little. I said, considering why you're here, you Christians, considering why you're here, why is it so important to some of you for weed to become legalized? And then I told them about something that God did in my life that I found very clarifying. It happened one Sunday morning. I had been up late Sunday night, the Saturday night. I'd gotten up at 4 a.m. that Sunday because I just couldn't stop tweaking the message. That's something of a habit. After preaching and then having a couple of great conversations with dear brothers and sisters, I got in my car and I headed toward home thinking about how wonderful it was going to be to lay back in my recliner and be unconscious for a while. But just before I got to my driveway, I got a call, a very impassioned call from a dear friend that I hadn't seen in quite some time, a brother in Christ, not from this church. And he said, Tom, my wife is gathering up all her stuff 
and is very close to heading out the door. And she said, she's done with me and she's not coming back. And I'm pretty sure she means it. He said, can you come right now? He said, I think if she knows you're coming, she might hang around for a little while. I said, of course. And I immediately started heading toward his house, which is about 20 minutes away. The whole time I was driving, I was praying, profoundly aware of how utterly inadequate I was for the task at hand. And then I got there. And before I could knock on the door, my friend opened the door and I stepped inside. And let me tell you, you could cut the anger and resentment in that room with a knife. We sat down at their kitchen table. We prayed. We talked. We looked at God's Word. And we prayed some more for about two hours. And by the end of that time together, the Holy Spirit had done a powerful work in both of their hearts through His Word. And years later, they're still doing well. I still correspond with them. After telling that true story to my young brothers and sisters, I presented a little scenario for them to consider. This scenario would never happen, but I presented it to them to get their gears turning. I said, I asked them how they thought that real episode in my life would have panned out if I'd smoked a joint on the way home to ensure that my planned nap would be epic. I reminded them that God intends for us to be ready every moment of every day to be useful to Him in the lives of the people that He has placed around us, believers and unbelievers. And He doesn't tell us in advance when He's going to need to use us. We have no idea when He's going to drop in our laps a situation that requires every resource that He's given to us. Our time, our money, our mental sharpness, our knowledge of His Word, whatever it is that He wants to put to use. That's why we're here. And then I asked them again why it mattered so much to them whether weed was legal. Not why it mattered as an issue of social justice or cultural sensibility, or even economics, but why it mattered to them personally. And this time their answers were very different. And one of them said, I have never in my life thought about my life that way. God is calling us through His faithful apostle Peter to be done with the lusts of men and to be all about doing the will of God and to be delighted in doing so. You want to get high, that is the most amazing high. To be used by God in the life of, in the lives of other people. It's not about euphoria. It's not about sensation. It's about truth. It's about power. It's about purpose. It's about real significance as the image bearers of the living God. Almost done. Some of you may look at the short list of sins in verse 3 and you might say, okay, well, I've never cheated on my wife. I haven't had so much as a beer for the last 10 years. And the last party I went to was our ministry group Christmas party. So it looks to me like I'm in pretty good shape here. The first part of my response to that kind of thinking would simply be read the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 and 6. If our outward behavior does not convict us before God, our hearts certainly do. 
But there are many ways to indulge the lusts of men. Those lusts can take very subtle forms. Peter knew this exceedingly well, and he knew it firsthand. In Matthew 17, immediately after recording Peter's beautiful confession of Jesus Christ as the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew proceeds to record a far less praiseworthy episode in Peter's interactions with Jesus. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and raised up on the third day. As soon as Jesus spoke those startling words, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Why did Peter become so panicked when he heard Jesus speak of suffering and dying? So panicked that he rebuked the one he had just acknowledged as God's promised Messiah, the Son of the living God? He was afraid that if his master had to suffer and die, he might have to suffer and die. And that's exactly what Jesus was saying to him and to the other disciples. And that's exactly what Jesus told him was going to happen to him. At that point, Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. Peter learned about the things that he presents to us here the hard way, the same way many of us learn them. He learned that the ways of the flesh and the ways of God have no common ground at all, even when sometimes it looks like they do. The life to which we are called is a life that turns decisively away from everything that fallen men hold dear, including comfort and breath. And that instead clings fiercely to the living hope that we have only in Jesus Christ. That living hope assures us that it's only through our participation in the suffering of Christ the point of the death of these dying bodies that we will lay hold of the end of sin, the end of suffering, and the end of death. The inclination of the mind and heart by which we live out that hope is always very keenly aware that the time that remains, us, that remains to us to be all about God's work is very, very short. Dear Father, I pray that we will not walk away from the power of this passage, from your exhortation to us through your faithful apostle Peter. We will not walk away from this as if it's something we can just think about for a while and be done with. You're calling us to wake up every morning and to order our days in a revolutionary way. We ask, Father, that you would your spirit would be at work in us to will and to work for your good pleasure that we might do exactly that. Make us useful to you, Father, no matter what it costs us. It costs Christ everything. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.